0: I have therefore come to the decision to resign as president of the Republic
1: with immediate effect. Welcome back to PS Editor's Podcast. I'm Greg Bruno.
0: A reluctant announcement from an embattled president. The president Jacob Zuma will step down as South Africa's president.
1: It came just hours before parliament was due to vote in a motion of no confidence against Jacob Zuma.
0: I declare the Honorable Matamela Cyril Ramaphosa, duly elected President of the Republic of South Africa.
1: It's been five months since Cyril Ramaphosa was elected leader of the African National Congress, and three since he was made South Africa's president following the resignation of Jacob Zuma. During his short tenure, Ramaphosa has targeted corruption, vowed to grow the economy again, and staked his reputation on his government's ability to repair the damage done by Zuma's misrule. But even as Ramaphosa remains popular, public frustration is mounting. Demonstrations over proposed minimum wage, housing costs, nepotism, and economic inequality are proving early tests to Ramaphosa's agenda. How he handles these issues will not only determine South Africa's path to recovery, but will also dictate whether he can win national elections in 2019. My guest today has spent years watching the evolution of South Africa's politics. Adrian Klasse is development finance editor, FDI in the banker magazines at the Financial Times, and the former editor of This Is Africa, the FT's flagship Africa publication. And while she's guarded in her predictions, she's optimistic that if anyone can turn South Africa around, it's the man currently in charge. Hello. Hi, Adrian.
0: Hi there.
1: Hi, this is Greg. Thanks for joining us today at PS Editor's Podcast.
0: Happy to be here. Thanks for calling.
1: Of course. So let's get right to it. Um, much to talk about in South Africa. I'd like to start with a general overview, if we could, of the political situation in the country. Um, after nearly a decade of misrule by Jacob Zuma, the country is poised for a rebound under a new president, Cyril Ramaphosa. What's the mood like in South Africa at the moment, both on the street? but, equally important, within the ANC.
0: I think on the street, um, look, South Africa remains a very politically divided country. I think, generally speaking, people were quite happy to see President Zuma go.
1: We were all glued to the screen. Students were
0: watching. Everyone was very excited. He held us so long for hostage, and we just feel like we're finally free because he was treating this country like his own personal playground, and we've had enough of that. I think it's the best thing ever. eh? I mean, on top of it, uh, leaders must come and go. Um, You know, I don't know if you watched any of the broadcasts on sort of the day when he was leaving, but generally the tone was one of sort of, you know, Really happy that this guy is finally out because he held on for a very very long time. Pure ecstasy. And he was yes, <laughs> it, there was a lot of ecstasy. People were really excited, um, and there was a feeling amongst many um, reflected in the fact that in sort of you know municipal elections last year, the ANC his party um, lost an unprecedented number of urban areas to the opposition. Democratic Alliance, which had never happened before. I mean, not since the fall of apartheid in 1994. So people were pretty fed up. I think they're cautiously optimistic. But at the same time, I mean, there are a lot of very deeply entrenched um, problems that uh, President Ramaphosa is facing. Um, You know, I think you are seeing a return also of investor confidence which is important but again it's still a very it's very early it's only been a couple months there's a lot of way and wait and see there's also a lot of expectation
1: yeah I with, mean within within the party itself I mean, he was elected uh, head of the ANC with a pretty small thin margin um, and I and I assume that that points to some questions or or potential divisions within the party
0: Yes, I mean, the ANC remains a deeply divided party between, I mean, a very simplified version is, you know, those who are sort of in the Ramaphosa camp and are saying, you know, we need to reclaim our identity as the party of Nelson Mandela, and we need to usher in an an era of change. And then those who are very entrenched in sort of Zuma style, um, sort of personalized uh, connection politics hmm. um, and who have a lot of interests at stake in maintaining much of the sta- status quo and or covering up what's been done over the past decade or so.
1: So I wanted to build on a, a point that you just made uh, about investor confidence, um, but also tie in your most recent column for Project Syndicate, where you talked about Ramaposa not being a miracle worker. So Ramaphosa was in London in April and he was essentially on uh, an investor tour, uh, spreading the message that South Africa is is open for business. He hasn't been in the job long, but Cyril Ramaphosa has certainly been busy. The South African president was forced to cut short his trip at the Commonwealth Summit in London as violent protests erupted in the South African city of Mahikeng. Demonstrators clashed with police as they demanded jobs, housing and an end to corruption. Do those events in any way undercut the message that the new president of South Africa is trying to spread?
0: I don't think the fact that there are protests necessarily undercuts um, the message that he's trying to get across to investors. I mean, investors are very aware of the fact that there are some massive labor and corruption issues that need to be tackled in South Africa. I think what it points to is that Ramaphosa is in this really interesting and difficult situation in that he is sort of trying to court the private sector. He's trying to court investors. He's trying to appeal to the international community that's been quite put off by what they've seen happening in South Africa um, over the past you know, few years and trying to get them to come back in and to invest and invest capital and grow the economy. At the same time, he has to cater to and and speak to some really populist um, grassroots issues that have to do with the widespread structural and social inequality problems that South Africa is still facing and many of those are still the legacy of apartheid and or have been exacerbated by you know mismanagement in government and you know poor economic performance over the past few years. I want to assure everyone
1: that we are going to act speedily on this matter. We are not able to give the exact time frame now, but we are going to act as speedily as possible to address each of the issues that have been raised with us. Okay, so those that, you know, the anger on the street, uh, interestingly directed to the past in some ways giving uh, Ramaphosa a pass and the ability to bring forth uh, and deliver on some of the promises that he's made. But it's curious to me that he's managed to avoid the ire, uh, I suppose, of the street, given that he's a product of the past. He's rich, he's refined, he loves wine and fast cars. Uh, I mean, these are certainly not the pursuit of average voters. So how do South Africans today view their new president? And in a country with such huge levels of inequality, how has he managed to keep his reputation uh, above the fray?
0: Well, and it's also worth noting, I mean, he's not also an outside figure. I mean, he was deputy president to Zuma for about five years, and he kind of sat back and kept quiet. I mean, the way he sort of tried to frame it is that, you know, I think that there was a quote, I think it was in the Financial Times, actually, that was something to the effect of, you know, there are times when one must sit back and be quiet, and then there are times when one must act and then not fail. So I think he sort of sees this now as his moment. But he's definitely not some man-of-the-people figure. I mean, he does have certain qualifications that, I suppose, set him apart. So he actually started his career as a labor union guy right, and a labor right. union lawyer. And he was also one of the chief architects um, of negotiating the end of apartheid. I mean, he was a real ANC guy. He was held in solitary confinement, you know, with a lot of other struggle figures um, for about 11 months. I mean, he has, you know, he has walked the walk. Um, Yeah, I mean, there is sort of a tension between, you know, Ramaphosa as sort of the man of the people, and then Ramaphosa as the high-flying business um, business millionaire, which was sort of his next act after it became clear that he wasn't going to be a key player in sort of Mandela's first government. Um, he's, but he's done a lot of work, I think in the past few months to sort of, you know, move away from this image of himself as sort of the, you know, the wine connoisseur and sort of the the lover of the finer things in life and sort of, you know, taking walks every day and shaking hands yeah, the and sort and of the doing grins. photo ops. Right. Yeah. So he's he's doing a lot of retail politics as well. Right. Um, but I think there's also just, you know, he's getting somewhat of a pass just because people are so happy to see somebody else in charge who is saying, you know,
1: enough is enough. Mm, Okay. So let's get into what he is saying. There's lots of challenges for for Ramaphosa to deal with. Let's dive into some of the specifics, if we could. I mean, there's a long list, but two that always seem to climb toward the top are corruption and patronage. Um, And in the weeks since Zuma's resignation, we've learned many more uh, examples of what that means and, and just how deep the state capture in South Africa is how can Ramaposa effectively deal with all of these issues and, and, and fix the economy and root out corruption and patronage if the economy is so stagnant, if unemployment is so, is so high, and in many ways state capture has been uh, a force unto itself and a means to an end for so long? Well,
0: that is the multi-million dollar question. I mean, I think part of the drive to court investors a, it's about sort of, you know, getting getting the economy back, you know, up to a decent level of growth that will hopefully start to create more jobs. But I think also as economic performance improves, Ramaphosa is going to have more political space to be able to go after people in the party. It will also strengthen his hand against uh, ahead of the elections that are going to happen in 2019. Don't forget, I mean, this has been sort of fed it as this huge political transition. And in the context of South Africa, it is, but it's still a transition, A, within a party, and B, there hasn't been a general election. So he's still somewhat hamstrung in that he has a lot of people within his party who are still in the Zuma camp who are very close to him. I mean, the national executive committee, which is sort of the top body of the party, is still divided evenly between sort of people that backed him and then people who are seen as still sort of being... Zuma Acolytes and who have interests in this, you know, state capture, um, the architecture of state capture that's sort of been erected on top of, you know, the legitimate government. Um, So I think that once he's gone through the election, first of all, his hand is going to be much, much stronger. Um, And second of all, I mean, he has already made some strong moves. You know, he did um, reshuffle his cabinet. He brought back in um, several ministers, prominent ministers that have been kicked out by Zuma once they had been seen to interfere too much in things that he didn't want interfered in and stand in his way um, when they saw malfeasance. Um, so I think that's a strong signal, but it's true that Ramakos himself has not has been hesitant to go after um, those accused of corruption within the ANC. Um, I think that the the fear then is that basically his coalition will crumble and mm. it will be very difficult for him so he to and go, for the party.
1: He has to go about to, doing that slowly, I would imagine.
0: Yes, it's going to be a gradual process. This is not this is not a case in which it will be easy to just clean the house mm. and then win an ele- election and then sort of fix the economy and all these other things at the same time.
1: Now, I have to ask, uh, with so much anti-corruption talk happening and with a history of, of nepotism and patronage so deep, and rife during the Zuma years. Is it possible that Ramaphosa might get caught up in some of this stuff? I mean, put another way, how clean is he?
0: From what we know, and again, who knows what could come out of the woodwork, but from what we know, he he himself is clean. That's the reason that he's been able to ascend in this way and sort of set himself apart. I mean, he did very, very well in business. He benefited a lot from sort of black economic empowerment. Um, legislation that was passed by his own party early, you know, post-apartheid, but he himself has never been implicated in any of the sort of quote-unquote muck, if you will, that many of the people around him um, have found themselves, have have mired themselves in voluntarily, let's put it that way. Um, That being said, you know, there are people, again, quite close to him and within the cabinet who are not clean.
1: The more we read about what's happening, uh, you know, currently and and throughout South Africa's modern history, the issue of land always seems to surface. You know, it's been 25 years, a quarter uh, of a century after the end of minority rule, and yet white South Africans still own the majority um, of the most profitable land, farmland in particular. You know, and according to official estimates, I think something like 95% of the wealth is in the hands of 10% of the population. So all of these issues uh, are, are, are ones that Ramaphosa has vowed to change, especially on land ownership. So we want a round table dialogue, a full discussion on the question of land because we want the protection of property rights, not to be a protection of property rights to a few people only. Our economy has been also constrained by the fact that the land, which is a powerful resource, has just been reserved just for a few. So we want to unlock the levers of growth around the land. So let us share the land. So as as the president said, uh, he, he, he vows to do something about this, but the idea of land seizures and expropriation is hugely contentious, no matter who you're taking property fa- from and potentially economically devastating. So how might the president go about uh, addressing this huge, massive challenge for the country?
0: I think it's worth noting, first of all, that, I mean, Ramaphosa himself has made this point, but I mean, the expropriation also of South African land by the white majority during sort of the, during the apartheid years, um, is South Africa's original sin. I mean, this goes back to the native lands act of 1913, which basically pushed eight, the 80% black population onto 7% of the arable land in the country. Hmm, that's a I mean, it, it's, 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 it, it's a travesty by any calculation. Post-apartheid, actually, and in the current constitution, I mean, uh, you know, the fear always with land redistribution and as soon as the word expropriation comes up in relation to land is Zimbabwe. So Zimbabwe, under Robert Mugabe, who is also now gone, um, in 2000 basically kicked, I mean, in very simplified term, made it so that it was possible to remove white farmers from their land in Zimbabwe without compensation. And it, it destroyed what had been sort of quite a, a very productive agricultural economy. Um, it threw the economy into a tailspin. It resulted in sanctions. It was a disaster. So I don't think that you're going to see something like Zimbabwe. Um, and frankly, radical sort of expropriation is very complicated because in the case of South Africa, a lot of the land is actually very heavily indebted, mm. which means if you just expropriate it as the government, does that mean that you're also going to compensate the banks who hold, you know, that debt? Right. Or are you just going to wipe that off the market and then sort of send the financial sector into a tailspin? So there are a lot of complicated questions wrapped up in this. Um, but it's clear that something needs to happen because there's been very, very little movement um, in terms of actual black land ownership within South Africa, and that means that structurally you know, economic apartheid, to a certain extent, is still in place.
1: How much patience do South Africans have for all of the various promises that the new president uh, has kind of brought to the table already?
0: I mean, he has a honeymoon period, for sure. Um, but as you, you mentioned earlier, that there's sort of already protests sort of roiling in various cities um, around South Africa. And he's also, you know, facing protests um, by the public sector unions um, who want pay rises. Not a lot of patience, you know, not a huge amount of patience. I think that, you know, there's a lot of goodwill towards him, but at the same time, I mean, people have been waiting 25 years for things to change and things really for the vast majority of South Africans have not changed or and in many cases have gotten worse as the economy has deteriorated. Hmm. So he needs to move quickly on a lot of these issues. But I don't think that the land issue is one that's going to be settled right out of the gate because it's so complex and so politically contentious. Um, and will really scare investors if you don't do it right.
1: Right. Yeah, I mean, he's clearly paying attention to the street, you know, essentially dropping his, um, his tour in London, courting investors to race home to deal with these very issues. So he's taking it seriously, quite, quite obviously. Um, but that's also indicative of just how uh, potentially fragile the situation is at the moment for him.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, again, he he has a deeply divided party, a di- deeply divided country, and he hasn't consolidated his power at the head of the ANC entirely yet. You know, in in the article that I wrote with with Emery um, for you guys, you know, we did argue that we did argue that a, he was facing sort of a lot of different divisions on different fronts. I actually thought it was going to take him a lot longer after he was elected, hey, of the ANC to get Zuma out. I thought he was, to a certain extent, weaker than he proved to be. He confounded that expectation, which I think is a wonderful thing, and I'm happy to be wrong on that front. Uh, But that doesn't mean that all of these issues have suddenly gone away.
1: Right. I mean, Zuma's supporters are not gone from the ANC, and accolades are sprinkled throughout the institutions that must now be reformed in the Ramaphosa era.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, one of the criticisms that was leveled at his sort of first cabinet reshuffle, which did put sort of, you know, powerful figures that had been kicked out by Zuma for getting too inquisitive or for, you know, basically for opposing him, like Pravin Gordon, like Nene, um, who's now back as finance minister, you know, back into the cabinet. There are also a lot of Zuma acolytes that are still within the cabinet, And still within the top echelons of the party, I mean, Ace Magashule, who's the second uh, secretary general of the ANC, is a Zuma guy and is wrapped up in, you know, some of these Gupta-linked state capture allegations. So he doesn't really have a clean slate.
1: One of the bright spots, uh, at least in recent years, has been uh, the strength of the judiciary to serve uh, kind of as a counterbalance. And in the past has somewhat proven resilient to this immense pressure to capitulate, as you and anne noted in your piece. How important will the courts be uh, and the judicial uh, branch of government be for Ramaphosa, Ramaphosa going forward in terms of uh, helping push through uh, some of the reforms that he needs to? He clearly needs, uh, he clearly needs support and friends at the moment. Um, uh, will the courts provide it?
0: I mean, I think the the wonderful and also the frustrating thing about a highly independent judiciary, especially from Ramaphosa's um, perspective, is that they are going to continue to pursue corruption and, you know, mismanagement when they see fit. Um, and I think long term, that is, of course, in the interest of South Africa. Shorter term, if you're trying to win an election with a, shall we say, tainted government and cabinet that can pose problems for you. But yes, I mean, I think that the fact that, you know, the courts were, I mean, before um, Ramaphosa sort of ascended to the presidency, I mean, the courts were basically calling parliament back and saying, you know, Zuma did so many things wrong and you won't even pursue sort of article. They basically commanded uh, the parliament to start looking into impeachment for Zuma, which was one of the many things that conspired to sort of start really moving him out. Um, so you know this is clearly a very powerful institution um, that is not going to pull any punches. but at the same time, you know, so now um, a new a case against pre- former President Zuma has been reinstated. Um, this is a he's basically got 16 charges of wrongdoing, corruption, racketeering, um, you know, a whole range of of accusations leveled against him, having to do with an arms deal um, that he was involved in in the 90s. Now, this case came to the courts um, several years ago. It was let go for reasons that are unclear, um, which many allege have to do with you know undue influence by Zuma and his uh, backers. Um, that's now coming into the court system again, and I think that that's great. It will finally put. It will expose what happened with this sort of massive arms deal in in which there were, were multiple kickbacks and in which a lot of the equipment that was sold to South Africa either was faulty or was never used. It was just a giant white elephant deal, basically. And it will expose how that came to be and will bring certain people to justice. At the same time, I mean, President Zuma headed the ANC for 10 years and he was in sort of intelligence for the ANC before that. This is a guy who knows... Where all the bodies are buried, and if and if push comes to shove, and he's pushed into a corner, um, you know, I think that he could implicate a lot of people that could create a lot of headaches for Mr. Ramaposa again heading into 2019 elections. But such is the nature of democracy, <laughs>
1: <laughs> imperfect as it is. Now, just last last question, um, because I I think I need to ask it now. Are you essentially suggesting that the timing uh, of this case, while wonderfully great for South African transparency uh, and, and and democracy could actually be bad, not only for Ramaphosa, but for the ANC itself. I mean, is there a scenario in which we could see uh, the preeminent South African party not win in 2019?
0: I don't think it's a question of them not winning a national majority, but they are facing greater threat from opposition than they ever have since the end of apartheid. Um, as I mentioned earlier, Um, there were sort of municipal elections, uh, I think it was in 2016 or 2017, recent municipal elections anyway, in which the ANC lost control of major cities, including Johannesburg, um, to the opposition Democratic Alliance. So if the ANC is made to look really bad, and frankly, they're not looking all that great, um, you know, once you sort of dig a little bit beneath the surface and get beyond sort of Ramaphosa and his sort of, you know, honeymoon goodwill period, um, you could see the ANC being more seriously challenged than they ever had before. Again, I don't think the Democratic Alliance is going to get a majority, but they're going to start winning more and more seats and they're going to start having a louder and louder voice along with sort of other opposition parties um, in parliament and that will weaken the ANC. Overall, I don't think that that's a bad thing, but if you're in the ANC and you're trying to build a strong coalition to, you know, tackle all of these really tough issues, that's pretty inconvenient for you.
1: Hmm. Well, fascinating. It's a fascinating time for South Africa, an important one, uh, and that was a very sobering overview of the challenges that the new president faces. So thank you so much for your time today, Adrian. It's great to talk to you.
0: No problem. Thanks for calling.
1: That was Adrian Klasa, Development Finance Editor, FDI, in the Banker Magazines at the Financial Times, and a longtime observer of South Africa's politics. And that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate and review our podcast and subscribe on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And if you like what you hear, why not subscribe to our newest editorial offering, On Point, at www.project-syndicate.org. Until next time, I'm Greg Bruno.